Hello everybody and welcome back to El Cafecito. My name is Cassandra Yanis Leighton and on this episode we will be covering the Central American migrant caravan that dominated the news cycle pretty much all through 2018 and continued to make the headlines up until last month when news of a new caravan emerged in mid-January. So Personally, I don't think the caravan is particularly spectacular as a migration phenomenon. People have been migrating in large groups for thousands of years. Rather, what really draws my attention about all of this is the way the caravan helps uncover these trends in American politics um, regarding the American reaction, uh, especially um, by policymakers and civilians. And perhaps most uh, importantly, the way the caravan helped uncover these stories of horrific and extreme gang violence, which has been plaguing Central America for quite some time now. And that is the main driver of migration outside of the Northern Triangle, which is the area comprised of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Um, perhaps for a little bit of context, we can pinpoint the end of the Cold War as the origin point of the increased gang activity in Central America. Throughout the 1980s, uh, Central America was plagued by these Cold War guerrilla um, conflicts, military conflicts, uh, and civil wars. And this left a lot, first of all, it left a lot of, of weapons in the area. It left a lot of uh, single men with nothing to do in the area. But to truly understand um, organized gang activity in Central America, you need to fast forward to the 1990s, where two things of major importance um, took place. First of all, the United States led this large-scale deportation of undocumented immigrants with a criminal record. Um, and the United States kind of dumped all of these people back into Central America. And on, this, on the other hand, we also had... Um, because of the United States-led interdiction efforts in Colombia, Mexico, and the Caribbean, narco-trafficking routes were pushed up north um, of Colombia, pushed up north of Colombia and into Central America, so that today, 90% of cocaine inflows into the United States actually pass by this region. So these are two things to keep in mind um, to really understand how and why transnational gang activity came about and, and how it was able to build itself in order to reach the levels of organization and control um, that it maneuvers today. So to discuss all of this, I sat down with Prachi Singh um, back in February 1st, so it was a while back. You may uh, remember Prachi from our first episode, Only the People Can Save the People. But in case that you don't, Prachi is a third year student studying Latin American Studies and International Relations. And here is that conversation. Okay, so in April of last year, there was a first migrant caravan that garnered a lot of uh, media attention. And this was coming from, it started in Honduras, I believe, then made its way through the Northern Triangle, it's mm -hmm. called, right? Which is Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. I don't know why Belize isn't part of this Northern Triangle, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so this garnered a lot of media attention. Eventually, only about a handful, 100 people ended up actually making it to the border. Um, but that was enough to instill a lot of fear in people and to, you know, and a lot of fe- a lot of fear in the people in the U.S. side, but a lot of hope in people in the Northern Triangle side, because then we just started seeing caravan after caravan taking off once again, starting from Honduras and building up as they go up north. So the latest one started, I think, last week. Last week or two weeks ago, we got we had a new one. Yeah, they they keep sort of coming in waves. And one really interesting thing is that the caravan has now become the preferred mode of travel because the previous way, which was much more individualistic, required you having to pay like coyotes, like money, lots of money. And so for people who are already sort of in poverty and then also undergoing a whole bunch of violence like that was never a feasible solution to save up something like three four thousand dollars to pay somebody to smuggle you across a whole bunch of countries and then across the border um and so there's this idea of like safety in numbers so the sense of traveling in groups of you know a couple hundred or even a couple thousand like that's really appealing and a lot of people will tag on to that because you don't have to pay a lot of money to some individual but there is a higher likelihood ideally you know now we can talk about what the militaries are doing and stuff but ideally the idea would be that you would have safety in numbers like you wouldn't be subject to like gang violence or something like that because there's a significant number of you in a caravan yeah so the coyote which are human smugglers as you said those were the um preferred modes of of transportation i suppose and those were extremely, extremely expensive. A trip from Honduras to the U.S. would cost at least $4,000 and up to $12,000 per person, U.S. dollars. And that's not feasible for people who are, you know, not in the best economic situation, right? The, that level of privilege, it requires a certain level of privilege to be able to do that. And that's actually a problem that comes up throughout this entire, like, quote-unquote, migrant caravan um, issue, which is that... The richer you are, the likelier you actually are to have an asylum claim process. So one distinction I want to make is the distinction between a refugee and somebody seeking asylum. So refugee applications, they happen all from abroad. So that would be in this context, somebody from like Honduras being like, I'm undergoing a lot of persecution or violence. And while they're still in Honduras or Mexico or somewhere from abroad, they would apply to the United States for refugee status. Asylum means you're you're in the U.S., You've somehow made it there, and now you are seeking asylum from the United States. Um, and so what a lot of these migrants are hoping for isn't refugee status, because that's a very prolonged process. It takes a lot of time, and you're still, odds are, in a dangerous country, in a dangerous situation. They're joining these caravans because they're hoping that they're just going to land in the U.S., and then the rights that are granted to all these asylum seekers will kick in for them also. But... Um, the most effective way to actually, like there are a couple articles that talk about this, the most effective way to actually seek asylum is to take a flight into the U.S. from somewhere like Honduras or Guatemala or whatever, let your tourist visa lapse, and then apply for asylum. But that, again, like a coyote, like that requires money, right? So the objective is always to get your feet into U.S. soil because then certain laws, international norms, they all kick in to protect you. Um, but previously previous to these caravans, 
the ways of doing that were all really, really expensive. It either required you to get a visa and then a flight ticket and to somehow be able to land in the U.S., or it required you being able to get $4,000 to $12,000 for a coyote. And so now what's really interesting is because there are large numbers, it's not an individual or like a small group of people trying to cross, it's, it's a caravan. Um, one sort of loophole that Donald Trump is trying to do is he's trying to make sure that people never make it on U.S. soil. Because once people make it on U.S. soil and those protections kick in, it's really difficult to send somebody back. So a strategy that he's using, and we're seeing this actually not just in America, but all across the world. We're seeing this in Europe. We see this in Australia all the time with their migration policies. Migration policies. Um, the idea is that you don't let people onto soil. So you beef up either a military presence on the border or you try to build a wall, or you try to give Mexico some funding and assistance so that they stay on the Mexican side of the wall, figuratively, or sometimes literally in the cases of places like Tijuana. Um, and you would then not have to guarantee any rights to these people, right? The idea is that they're not on your soil, they're not your responsibility. And so in Europe, we're seeing this all the time where boats are being turned away and rerouted to places like Morocco or Tunisia. Um, in Australia, any person caught trying to come onto the mainland on a boat, they're usually sent to a place like uh, Papua New Guinea, like to a, uh, what is figuratively just a detention center there. And the idea is that Australia will process things from those detention centers, that Europe will process things from those centers in Morocco and Tunisia, that the U.S. would be processing these claims from camps set up on the Mexican side of the border. Until they're at the border, they basically are extremely, extremely vulnerable. Yes. Because they're not in their own land. A lot of these people are undocumented, even in their own land. Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico has so much crap that they're dealing with already yeah and so that's why you know by preventing by creating this barrier of you know preventing people to even get to the border you're really really exploiting the vulnerability of these people yeah and this is actually one of the critiques that's coming for example with um what australia does what europe does and now what america like u.s is starting to do so when the EU turns away a bunch of people and says you're going to go to Morocco or Tunisia instead, these are countries that don't necessarily have the economic infrastructure to be able to deal with this large number of people. And so what should be like a humane camp often ends up being the site of like intense human rights abuses in places like Morocco or Tunisia. And we see this happen in Australia all the time because Australia offshoots the, the quote unquote, the problem of what to do with migrants to places like Papua New Guinea or Nauru. Those countries don't necessarily have the resources. Those islands don't have the resources to deal with that. And so you end up having these sort of very horrifying camp detention center like situations where lots of human rights abuses take place. And that's sort of the fear of what could potentially happen with Mexico now. Because if the U.S. decides, no, no, we want all of these people to stay on Mexico in these sort of makeshift camps, the way history pans out with these sort of refugee camps, if you look at refugee camps all across the world, if you, it's never great, right? Like the situation always deteriorates to the point where suddenly you start having human rights abuses. Um, and especially... Right now, I think the biggest camp is in Tijuana, Mexico, which is relatively safe. If 
the more recent caravans, which are now trying to get in on the, the Texas side of the border and going through places like uh, Nuevo Laredo and like Ciudad Juarez and those kinds of places, like they're incredibly unsafe. So now suddenly if you try to establish a camp or a detention center and you have this huge influx of people in cities that aren't safe to begin with, that already have infrastructure problems where the police already has a lot of difficulty just you know, in enacting the rule of law. Yeah, they have their own difficulties policing their, their own, own people. people. And now you're going to add an influx of migrants who have all of their own issues coming in. And um, who are at least a thousand each caravan. was. Yeah, um, that's going to be... You're basically... It's the breeding ground for really bad future human rights violations. I also want to talk about why these people are fleeing the Northern Triangle in the first place because something that's been coming up in in um, in the U.S. politics is okay. Well, these people are not refugees. They're not. Their their claims for asylum are not legitimate because what they truly are are, are economic migrants. Mm-hmm. They're people who are so an economic migrant. If you don't know, is a migrant who. This is going to be the roughest definition ever. But basically, a migrant who is moving not due to persecution or threats to his life, but um, for better economic opportunities. Yep. In a nutshell. Yeah. So this is actually one of those things where... I did, this is the last time I was on the podcast. I pointed out um, the way in which we use language. So a lot of people have pointed out that the use of the word migrant caravan is problematic. Because when we say migrant, that's a huge group of people who are moving for a whole host of reasons. And what the reality of most of these people in these caravans are is that they're not migrants, they're actually asylum seekers, right? So the distinction between an economic migrant, like you said, somebody who's moving because they're trying to better their economic situation versus an asylum seeker is if you are seeking asylum, you have to show that there is some level of fear for your bodily safety. Um, and some form of violence or persecution that you're trying to escape from, right? So there's our very act of calling them migrant caravans. There are lots of human rights organizations that have kind of called that out, being like, when you call them a migrant caravan, what you're functionally saying is that you don't believe a lot of these people are coming here because they're trying to escape violence, whether it's gang violence, violence by paramilitary groups, violence from their own governments, which don't like dissidents, for example. You're painting this picture and Donald Trump likes to paint this narrative that these are people who have no reason to really have left their country except for to try to be rich yes to be for for their own economic benefit and that fits into a lot of narratives he likes that oh they're coming here to steal your jobs it's an invasion it's an invasion they're coming here to take your jobs they're coming here to take benefits from you they're coming here to better their own situation at your expense as opposed to They're coming here because a lot of them live in neighborhoods that are extremely violent. A lot of them are in poverty, yes, but that poverty is the result of violence, right? Because when you have neighborhoods that are filled with, let's say, gang violence or with paramilitary troops or any sort of systemic sort of threatening coercive force, a lot of you're not going to have a lot of shops in that neighborhood. It's not going to be like, there's not a lot of tourism or something that can help you. Like we've seen this sort of with how Nicaragua has deteriorated over the last year and a half to two years. 
people don't come to places that are really, really violent. The economies of them, those nations begin to sort of shut down. There aren't any jobs. True. And, and some people are poor. True. But that doesn't mean they are not also constantly facing the threat of violence at all times. And the, the bigger thing is you can't technically qualify for asylum if you don't show, I think the exact term is credible fear. So mm-hmm. believable fear. There's like a, a something called a credible fear test. And there's this narrative that a lot of these people are coming just to get jobs because they are, they're not in any actual danger. But um, in 2018, there was a congressional testimony from the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service officials who had detained, interviewed, etc., 401 members of one of the caravans that showed up at one of the American ports of entries. And they found that out of those 401 members, 374 of them, that's 93%, passed their initial credible fear test, right? So this idea that most of these people are just looking for jobs, that most of these people are just trying to better their economic situations, that they're economic migrants, and that they aren't actually living under some really tangible and horrifying situations of fear and violence, that's not true, right? Over 90% of this group of 400 in that caravan were people who they passed the American immigration standard for asylum, for living in a situation that has a lot of fear and violence, right? And people like to think that, oh, those that are poor must be moving only because they're poor without realizing that there's an overlap of these situations. People are poor because of endemic violence, in part because of endemic violence within their communities. Like these go hand in hand and people are coming, yes, to better their political situations, but also to escape because a lot of people have really horrible stories of how, you know, like MS-15 killed one of their cousins or something like that. You know, like almost everybody has a horrifying story of how violence has very personally affected them. Most people aren't just moving for a better job. And that's something that I think has been really left out of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Even even um, from news sources that are for migrant m- migrants and, and mm-hmm. migrant protections, even those news, series, news sources, I think, aren't sharing enough stories of why these people are leaving in the first place. And that's why these episodes are really good. I actually have the names right here. So... For the Radio Ambulante episodes that I was talking about, the first one is Postal de San, San Salvador, um, which talks about this woman in El Salvador who essentially, like, she couldn't even dye her hair a different color because if she dyed it the wrong color, she was indicating affiliation to either Mara Salvatruchas M13 or Barrio 18. Mm-hmm. And th- she was basically wearing a a big come kill me now flag on her head, essentially. Like, and that it was, it was like this ridiculous obstruction of your small details that make up your personal life, right? Um, and the second episode is No es País para Jóvenes, which um, is an episode in which he goes and interviews this family in Honduras who it's a mother with her two children and then her mother is in the U.S. sending them money every year every so often, um, but what she was explaining was that in her neighborhood, everything was relatively okay until this pandilla decided to move in, 
decided they're like, okay, this is going to be our territory. Now we might hold your kids for ransom, depending on the day. Um, at one point, they this car actually, a, a, a guy driving a car slashed her leg simply because he had to, simply because it was, okay, now uh, it was initiation, act of initiation um, to go into one of these... Um, I'm so not eloquent. I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think what that... Couple of things. One, I think I just called him MS-15 instead Yeah, <laughs> MS-13. I'm so sorry. I'm frazzled as well. But I think that indicates sort of how dynamic and fragile the situation is that truly for most people, even if they're living in relative safety in one sector of the city, that can change at any point in time because, like, the dynamics between certain gang groups change or because someone decides they're going to move in into a certain arena. And that really shows that there is um, people who were fine maybe, like, a year ago and were relatively living fear-free lives a year ago. That situation can change really rapidly so that, you know, then all of a sudden they do have credible fear. They have reason to want to leave. They're in much more bodily safety. Um, bodily safety. They're in their bodies in much more danger of harm than before. Right. And that's not to undermine how much psychological trauma is caused by just living in constant fear all the time. Um, For some numbers that are maybe a bit more telling, perhaps. um, Well, Latin America in general is the world's most violent region in times of peace. Like Mm -hmm. there are no wars there. And yet the three um, most dangerous cities in terms of the homicidal rate mm-hmm. are in Latin America. It's ridiculous. So El Salvador in 2016 had the number one spot with 82.84 intentional homicides per 100,000. Honduras is second with 56.52. And then Guatemala is 10th with 27.26. So... Violence is an extremely present, um, it's, violence is just so present in these people's lives, and I think that it's been normalized over there. Um, it's, you know, people kind of brush it off, and I think that that's what's happening over here as well, right? Where people, Americans especially, right, who, who are more entangled in this issue, Americans kind of tend to be like, okay, well, that's their norm, and so it's not particularly shocking to me. Like, I am not disturbed as much as I should be by these numbers. For reference, the city of Toronto in 2008 has 3.3 homicides for every 100,000 people. In Honduras, I think that you said the number was 50? In Honduras, it was 56. Yeah, and in El Salvador, it was... 82. Yeah, so 82 versus (laughs) 3.3. That's the, the level of relative safety or not safety and I guess for a little context so you know we already mentioned uh, Mara Salvatrucha M13 there's also Barrio Tres, uh, Barrio 18 these are gangs that are transnational actually in nature which makes it even harder for these governments to deal with them and who not only deal with drugs but they also deal with um, like kidnappings they deal with coercion um, people selling organs in the, in the black market. Mm-hmm. And so 
to me, I find it so ridiculous because when you see all of these reports on ISIS and all these awful things that they're doing, yes, of course, those are all terrible things. But these transnational gang organizations are at a similar level, mm-hmm. I would say. But it's not really presented that way. And I feel so that's why people can't find sympathy for these migrants. Yeah, I think a lot of it is people think they have a perception of what gangs are and how they operate. And they don't necessarily acknowledge sort of the reality of a constant gang presence in a particular city. Because what that means is you start recruiting men who have nothing else to really do. You recruit, uh, you force recruit women and children. You extort a lot of businesses on pain of death because you need funding. There's a lot of sexual violence to control the population. Like these are things that just are happening all the time in cities where, or neighborhoods where a gang has taken control. And these are sort of similar tactics to what happens when something like we used to talk about what in 2004 when the Taliban had control of a certain neighborhood the the type of fear tactics that they exerted they're they're not dissimilar right but because and in fact you one would argue that there should be a greater this is where it starts gets getting a little problematic but you could theoretically argue that people from Central America have greater claims to asylum or not greater claims but they should be approved at higher rates because they technically wouldn't even present the type of terrorist threat that like asylum seekers from a place like Syria or Iraq or whatever the Trump administration would argue oh when people apply for asylum from places like Syria we have to be really careful because they could be undercover terrorists or that kind of stuff super problematic right but assuming that line of logic like that's not really a fear for central american migrants right when these people come seeking asylum like there's no chance that they're suddenly going to turn into like a suicide bomber or whatever and so one of the ways that the trump administration has tried to undercut that was they were saying oh terrorists are sneaking in with the central americans they spotted a a nice fancy middle eastern looking rug yeah and then trump <laughs> just put that on blast it was like Muslims are infiltrating themselves with the caravan, which is already problematic in itself. And it's just the absurdity of it all is something that I think is so frustrating. Right. And it's, it's really horrifying to see how he's playing into lots of different stereotypes. One is that these people entering are gang members themselves. They're thugs. They're going to increase the violence of whatever neighborhoods they enter into the U.S. Then the other is he's playing... So that, that plays into one narrative about like Latino people, right? Then another narrative about Latino people is like, these people aren't even in danger. They're here to steal our jobs. That's like a common stereotype that they like to use. And then the third one is, let's also tackle on, in addition to this, they're all thugs or they're all coming to steal our jobs. There are terrorists amongst them who are, you know, that even if some people are legitimate, you know, we have to be super careful because ISIS is trying to come in through, I don't know, they go seek out, I like, I don't, it's the, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's the way in which they're really playing on all of these different um, stereotypes and narratives and putting them all on these groups of people who realistically, like a vast majority of them are just in danger they're constantly living under fear and they are so desperate to not be in that situation that they're willing to walk thousands of miles to get to the U.S. border in hope for a better life. 
our conclusion then is that these are not economic migrants for the most part. These are people who do have a very valid, credible fear of persecution, gang violence. And in last year, in June of 2018, U.S. Attorney Jeff Sessions made it harder for migrants to cite domestic violence and fears of gang violence as part of their asylum application. He argued that the mere fact that a country may have problems effectively policing certain crimes, such as domestic violence or gang violence, or that certain population are more likely to be victims of crime, cannot itself establish an asylum claim. Essentially, what he was doing is the one reason why people are leaving this area, he was saying, that's not valid for asylum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it so, got revoked, just so you know. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why it got revoked is because of these older sort of norms and laws that say, like, actually, these are credible fears. Like, if a, if a gang is threatening you, that's a very credible fear for your, you know, your body for being persecuted for violence. Um, but it's it's very, very interesting, and this goes back to this idea, the way in which the U.S. is trying to invoke every possible legal loophole it can to prevent asylum seekers in these caravans from actually trying to follow through on their claims, right? Because this would have been a very successful way of undercutting a lot of people's asylum claims, being like your fear that, you know, MS-13 is going to, is in your neighborhood and is extorting you and has threatened you with death. That's not a credible fear because that falls under gang violence, Right. Um, and so that's like one really clear cut way in which they were trying to do a legal loophole. Another one that we discussed is they're trying to make everybody just stay in Mexico and never get to U.S. soil. And there is a much more insidious one as well, which is that there's act, they're exerting pressure on the governments of these Central American nations to tell them that, um, you need to basically get your people under control. You need to stop them from leaving. Um, you need to police your own borders more effectively so that they're not leaving, then showing up in Mexico, then showing up in the U.S. And that is also really horrifying considering the implications of, one, you, the U.S. putting pressure on Central America before and what that has meant for those nations. And you also begin to see this very terrifying breakdown of relations between these Central American nations, right? Between El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and, um, and this Nicaragua, into... right? And so this goes into what I was sort of talking about, which is like these countries have had treaties, they've had agreements before. So one of them is called the... C4 agreement. Yeah, it's called, I think, CA4. Um, and it's the... Central American for Free Mobility Agreement. It basically works sort of like the Schengen Zone in Europe. The idea is that if you are a citizen of one of these four countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, like you don't have to present... Um, you can just travel within those four countries freely. You don't need a visa. You don't need a passport. There are no real restrictions or checks. And because of this pressure now that Trump is exerting on Central American countries to say you need to stop letting people cross over from Honduras into Guatemala, from Guatemala into, you know, because of this extra pressure that's being exerted, now all of a sudden you have increased paramilitary presence on the Honduras-Guatemala border. You have the Honduran army showing up on the border. You have actual force checks where all of a sudden the only people who are allowed to cross the border between Honduras and Guatemala are people who are, let's say, 
Honduran and they work in Guatemala during the day and come back. So you see all of a sudden that the U.S. is using multiple tactics. They're not just fortifying their own borders. They're exerting pressure on these Central American countries to prevent people from leaving. They're sort of breaking down this treaty that's been in place since 2006 that says people can move through these four countries freely. They, should, they have freedom of mobility. Um, they're breaking that one that agreement sort of down with their external pressure. And it's also technically a human rights violation because Article 13 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights says that people have the right to freedom of movement and that you have the right to leave any country, including your own. And that Trump is basically forcing these countries and exerting pressure by threatening to remove aid, by threatening to remove support, um, to, to prevent people from having access to this very basic human right, which is that if I want to leave my country, I can. Also using, he's also using a lot of deterrence at the border itself. So this was something that didn't start with Trump. Obama did detain families Mm -hmm. at the border as well because the U.S. was hit with a a pretty significant um, inflow of uh, Central American migrants in 2014 and in 2016. And that's when he started detaining families. And now we've got Trump that's gone a step further Mm -hmm. and actually separating them and using tear gas at the border. All of this in hopes that this news will will reach the ears of Central Americans planning to leave next week and be like, actually, it might not be completely worth it. And here's the thing, right? That's clearly not working, right? His idea that we're going to deter people with this show of military force by sending a bunch of troops to the border, by forcing Mexico to keep them in cities, by this sort of big show of military force, it hasn't worked. And I think that's sort of a testament to how much fear a lot of people are living through in El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala and now even in Nicaragua, right? Which is that there is enough fear for their safety and their lives are so sort of desperate that they would be willing to brave whatever that military presence is at that border for the hope of a better life in the U.S., right? That it's really a testament to how terrible your life must be, that even when there's this big show of deterrence, even when there's this idea that you might be thrown in a detention center, you're not going to, people are still like, well, better than the alternative, you know, better than staying here. And the fact that he's been making these announcements since, what, like October of last year, since November of last year, and we're now in February, and in January there was another caravan that left, right? So you can see that the deterrence model clearly isn't working, and honestly that's like a testament to how terrible people's lives are there, that they're still like, well, gotta try. (laughs) And I think it's also a testament at a failure from the American side to truly investigate why people are leaving, to truly understand the scale of gang violence and of a failure of them attempting to undercut those root causes that mm-hmm. are, you know, are motivating, are giving people so much fear that they, ha- they feel forced to leave this, their countries no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the first thing that needs to happen on the American side is a recognition that gang violence is a problem and it's not a Honduras problem. It's not a Mexican problem only. It's also an American problem, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, 
at the end of the day, you can't just say, hey, Mexico, you're going to have to deal with all these people on your side because we just don't want to. Like, it's an American problem as well. And it's not going to get better if you continue to portray these people as economic migrants that are going to be deterred with these very, very with these acts that really don't mean much to them, as you were just saying, right? Mm -hmm. They will wait five years at that border to get their hearing because that border is safer than their own home in wherever it is they're coming from. And it's not... I remember reading this very, like, poignant interview of somebody on the caravan, and they were talking about... You know, they were like, aren't you worried you're going to be tear-grassed at the border, like, that there you might face violence there? And they were like... I face violence at home, right? Like, tear gas is better than, you know, I think they were talking about, like, I have a cousin who lost an arm because somebody cut it off in a gang initiation. Um, you know, they, had, they knew people who had been shot. And so this sense of, like, even that threat of violence, people are willing to brave that because the violence that they might face by staying at home, he's like, tear gas is nothing. You know, tear ga- I'll recover from tear gas. You don't recover when you've been shot. Um, You might. (laughs) But that's something that I think about a lot. And we talk a lot about, you know, the U.S. sort of investigating and trying to, if if they really want to stem the flow of migrants, sort of investing some time and energy in that. And I think it's really interesting how, for example, I talked about people are patrolling the Honduran border to try to prevent people from leaving. The people who are doing that are, like, U.S. trained, a lot of them. Groups like the Tigres, the Rurales, they're special police forces that a lot of them were trained by the U.S. Um, a lot of the, like, the jeeps that they drive to patrol these borders within Central America, the U.S. paid for a lot of them. And so you can see that the U.S. is already involved. And they're involved to try and increase military presence, to try and further deter people from leaving. And it's like, if you took that time and energy and money, and you instead try to invest it the way the U.S. has in the past, um, under the Obama administration, under a couple other administrations, to try and rebuild society or crack down on violence or try to negotiate peace talks, temporary truces, like, that would be a much better investment of American time and energy. And it would actually better their lives enough that maybe people would stop immigrating, right? Like, that's the root cause of the problem. Until life gets better there, people aren't going to want to stay. I think that there's also a very important educational component in the U.S., especially when it comes to drugs, Mm -hmm. because... As we were saying, you know, the main reason why people are fleeing is because of gang violence, which is motivated by drugs. And who are the number one consumers of cocaine? The U.S. Yep. So it's this, I think it's just this way of trying to empty, I don't know, like, what's that expression? When, you're, when your boat is sinking and you only have a bucket with a hole in it, <laughs> trying to clear it up. I think that the hole in it is all of this American activity that is incentivizing gang activity. Mm-hmm. And that is, those two things just keep, will continuously keep feeding on each other until one of them are undercut. Yeah, I think there's a sense that one of the ways in which people are trying to 
say that this is not the America's responsibility, right? America's trying to absolve itself from any involvement that it's ever had. They're like, it's not a lot of people who are against, let's say, uh, immigration or migration or asylum seeking. They're like, why is this my problem? Right? Like, this isn't my problem. This isn't America's problem that Honduras is really violent or El Salvador is really violent or Guatemala is really violent. And what that speaks to is this sort of blindness to history and whether deliberate or not, this sort of ignorance of actually this has a lot to do with you. Like, America cannot absolve itself of responsibility for some of what is going on in, in Central America. Right? It really can't. Like, it can't absolve itself for problems like drugs. It can't absolve itself for problems like violence. It can't absolve itself for the fact that a lot of these countries, like, they don't have functioning police systems or, you know, it, it's, or rule of law. Like, the idea is that it's either, like, dictatorial rule or nothing. Um, and that America is very closely linked to all of that, but there's a certain lack of, like you said, education. There's a certain blindness and willful ignorance about history um, and America's involvement in that Latin American history that um, allows people to just be like, this isn't my headache, right? That there is no reason why we should be caring about these Central American migrants because this has nothing to do with us Americans, right? As if you're not the United States of America, as if you're not part of the Americas, as if what happens in those places has nothing to do with you. And that's just, that's not true. I I don't think that the U.S., and, and, and this is another thing where the argument is just being distorted completely in which you know some people are saying okay well it's not our fault that they're having all of this and so we don't need to give them all entry into the U.S. and I'm like Mm -hmm. that's not the issue really what what aggravates me is that yes you do have a part to you did have a part to play in the violence that is happening in Central America no you are not forced to Um, because of this history, you do not need to receive all of these people in the U.S., but you at least need to give them the options that are legally available to them, and you need to care for their dignity. Yeah. And and that's something that I think that a lot of people don't understand. What's what we're pushing for, what we're pushing for, what I'm pushing for (laughs) is not for all of these migrants to have a free card into the U.S., hello, everybody, get your green cards, one, on, one after the other, everybody, please. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening, and, and that's not what what is frustrating them. I think that what's happening is these people are simply not given a fair chance Yeah, that they need and that they deserve, and especially coming from a country that has the resources to do so. Yep. And so this goes back to that thing where it's like, yeah, under international law, under treaties, the U.S. has signed itself, under treaties that the U.S. helped create post-World War II. Because during World War II, one really shameful thing that happened is a ship containing a whole bunch of Jewish people fleeing Nazi Germany showed up at America's borders and America turned them away. They were like, no, thanks. We're not going to. They sent them back to where they came from. Lots of those people died. And so... That's fundamentally what all of these norms exist for. And America itself has built these ideas that if you say you are in danger, you have the right to at least plead your case. And that's not even being afforded to so many of these people coming from Central America. They're never given the chance to plead their case. 
Oh, well, that's <laughs> annoying. <laughs> I think we can finish it up with this quote. At a rally, Trump said, you know, if you don't want America to be overrun by masses of illegal aliens and giant caravans, you'd better vote Republican. That, that is such a incredible quote because it, it goes back to that point that these aren't really people to him, right? They're these people with their legitimate stories, their legitimate fears, their harrowing tale of having walked like thousands and thousands of miles to get to the American border. Like they're, they don't matter to him beyond as a tactic, right? As, a, and a, as an election tactic. And that, that callousness is sort of rippling down throughout the American immigration system, throughout the American response to these asylum seekers, throughout the public narrative around who these people are. And it so fundamentally ignores the actual individuals who have gone through so much to get here and deprives them of like their basic human rights, their right to move, their right to be heard, their right to try and seek a life like away from violence, these rights that America has historically agreed to give to them and every other individual on the planet. Um, and that level of callousness, that's terrifying. <laughs> and what I think would need to be addressed and changed moving forward.